Thank you so much. Afternoon, everybody. Yeah, good, good to see everyone. Uh, is everyone enjoying the service so far? I, I, I really, really am. I, I think I'm trying to decide <laughs> what my favourite part is so far in terms of worship, Becca. I'm going to give it to Graham for like literally just making me chuckle all the way through and um, by making fun of the shades. I think I'm going to give you know, the cherry on top for that. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I'm enjoying this afternoon. Um, so enough about you know, my, my assessment or review of Hope City to, so far. Um, let's, get, let's get into the words for today. So we're going to focus on the Gospel of Mark, which is where we're speaking from today. So if you turn to chapter 8, um, that is where we're going to be kind of carrying on from. So I'll give you a second just to find that, and, and then we'll, we'll read through and go from there. So, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Amen. So, I think when we read this passage... I think the first thing that strikes me is it sounds a bit familiar, um, and that's because it is, because we, we, in a way, in that we read a very similar sounding miracle uh, a couple of chapters ago, which you know, uh, Brother Sam went through so eloquently in terms of going through the Jesus feeding the 5,000, and being honest, like, so I, I've, I've had the privilege of growing up in church, and actually, I reckon it was a good few years into my life before I actually realized that these were separate instances rather than just one miracle. Um, and actually, many scholars have actually uh, tried to suggest the same as well, that these, rather than you know, being the two documented miracles of Jesus feeding the 5,000 um, in Mark chapter 6 and Jesus feeding the 4,000 that we've read today, that actually it was just one miracle that happened and, and what's happened is that the way that it's been relayed in terms of word of mouth has just led to it you know in a form of convoluted Chinese whispers ended up with us having two separate miracles and really only actually one incident happened um, the, the problem with that is um, is that actually Jesus himself acknowledges that these were two separate incidences which if you read a few verses down in chapter 8 uh, from 17 to 21 it, when he's rebuking his disciples actually he points out very clearly that there's two that are two separate instances what, what why is that important 
I think, for me, the importance comes from it's really easy for us to you know, focus quickly on, okay, here's Jesus feeding a few thousand people and how similar that sounds, but without taking the time to pay attention to the differences between the two miracles. We know that, and we're here because we believe that the Bible is the word of God, and we know that you know, God wouldn't put a typo in there. He wouldn't put in a story twice if we didn't need to be in there, uh, if it didn't intend to be there, or actually even similar sounding stories there if there, if there wasn't some value in that. And so as Christians, we maybe not need to avoid taking the shortcut um, in terms of thinking, oh, it sounds like the same kind of thing, and actually take the time to explore some of these differences. Um, one of the key things in terms of differences between the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus feeding the 4,000 is the geographical location. Um, so uh, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is feeding 5,000 people in the, in the location of Israel. But actually in our miracle today, he's in the region of the non-Jews, um, uh, the, the, the Decapolis, um, where there are um, Gentiles, as we call them really. So a, a very different uh, group of people. And where's the significance in that? We'll, we'll, we'll try and dig into that in a bit more detail now. So if you remember you know, Sam speaking through the miracle of feeding the 5,000 uh, know, a few weeks ago, he pointed out how Jesus feeding the Israelites actually demonstrated the fulfillment of, in scriptures of uh, God providing a shepherd for his people. Um, and the, Jesus, in that miracle, was also demonstrating himself as being God because it echoed really, really perfectly actually God's provision for the people of Israel um, thousands of years ago following their exodus within the wilderness. So in that instance of Jesus feeding Israelites in the wilderness, he's showing that he is God and he's also showing that he is a shepherd that was prophesied many, many years prior. In Psalm 78, verse 52, um, it speaks of God in this way. Um, but he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, um, where um, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is detailed, it says this. But he brought his, um, sorry, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So that's entirely intentional, you know, that that reference to a shepherd is there. Jesus is that shepherd. Um, and with Jesus actually, in today's passage, provide, performing a similar miracle for non-Jews and for Gentiles, actually what is being demonstrated is that Jesus is a shepherd not just for Jews and not just for the people of Israel, but for all of us. Um, and just like um, God um, did the miracle of the Exodus for the Israelites all those years ago. He's able to do that miracle of an Exodus for each and every single one of us from our sin and from the difficulties that we experience in life. That is what is being demonstrated in this miracle. And so, can you see how even a subtle difference in terms of actually where where the miracles are taking place actually has a really great significance in telling us you know, about Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. Um, and so that's why it's so valuable and important, church, for us to not 
you know, skate over and look at you know, the Bible in a, in a sur- at surface level. And it's, it's so hard in our data. We're always in a hurry. We're always in a rush. We're always busy. And the easiest thing is just to kind of, you know, even in reading, it's either not to read our Bible at all, or when we are reading our Bible, to kind of race through. But I just encourage you to, you know, tr- carve out that time to, to study God's Word. Because when you study, you get so much more out of it than just uh, breezing through it and, and actually seeing what, learning to recognize some of these differences and subtleties that actually hold so much value and mean the gospel, make the gospel mean so much more. Um, so yeah, let, let's delve into you know, the first few verses of chapter 8 and I'll read them again. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So Jesus is being followed by a crowd for three days. Um, I mean, a crowd of thousands of people. You know? So in many ways, he's already kind of a verified celebrity. But to me, the response that Jesus has to this is actually quite unnatural in a way. Um, Because I I think the natural human response, or or maybe the natural bookie response, might be very different. So I I think maybe maybe one of these responses might be to be to be proud. You know, Jesus could be proud at this point of you know how many people are following him. You know, in terms of you know what he has to say and the miracles that he's doing, you could see how naturally in ourselves our, our ego might become to, start to become inflated if we were in his shoes in that situation. And you know, I think each of us can draw parallels in our own lives. In in that, that can be a trip that we can. Sorry. So, a trap that we can fall into so frequently and on a day-to-day basis, you know? You know how, how many people are following me on Facebook? How many people liked that photo? How, how many you know, uh, views have I got on Instagram or whatever else it might be? We're all interested in how many people are following us and, and how that can inflate our view of self. The other natural response, though, that we might have to the crowds following us, if not one of pride, could be one of just wanting all the people to go away. You know, I, I, I can't imagine somebody following me everywhere that I went for two hours, never mind for three days. Um, I would just want some peace. <laughs> so I think it, it, it sounds like a very, you know, from a you know, 21st century point of view, like these people are invading his space, you know. Um, and naturally, actually, in that kind of situation, you might want to push them away. You know? But these, these two human responses of you know, feeling proud at the following or actually wanting to push the following away, they, they, they seem opposite, but actually at root, they're very similar. And, and by that, I mean that pride in our followers you know, leads us to see people as not much more than you know, just the next hit of dopamine that makes us feel better and happier about ourselves rather than see them for who they are and value them. And, it, and the opposite in terms of pushing people away means and dismissing the people that follow us 
means that we see their needs and we elevate ourselves above them and make them smaller and lesser than ourselves by saying, yeah, I don't, I don't have time to deal with you right now and pushing them away. So in both instances, we're taking people that God has carved and given inbuilt value, he's given you the image of God he's created, and we're making them less, either through our, either through our pride or through um, pushing them away and not giving due attention to their needs. But Jesus isn't like us. He's perfect. Yeah. So he doesn't fall into this trap. He has the needs of those around him front and center of his mind at all times. And he shows true compassion. And I think the challenge for us is, you know, can we emulate this? Can we truly try and be, you know, we, we, you know, Becca put the creed up for us to read and for us to say earlier, what is it to be a Christian? You know, uh, to be Christ-like. Can we try and live as he did? Can we put the needs and practice putting the needs of those around us above our own as a church? And can we care for the people around us in a, in a, in a practical way? You know? It would have been so easy for Jesus to, and to be honest, you'd almost want to you know, clap for Jesus for, in a way if he just said, oh, these people are hungry, let me send them home. Because that in a way is actually that he's been, he's been thoughtful, hasn't he? He's thought about them, he's thought about their needs. But actually, Jesus goes a step further, you know? He's, th- he's, he's not just saying, oh, they're hungry, let me send them home. He's saying, he's, they're hungry, I can't send them home. Actually, I care about them so much that I'm gonna keep them here and provide for them right now. And I think, for me, that's a really important challenge because Jesus isn't just saying the right things, he's doing the right things. And I think for us, there are so, there are so many you know uh, times where we can you know beat the drum for various causes, which are all right, and it's so easy actually to find causes to beat the drum for. But how many times are we going to go the extra step and actually live out the live out and actually help people with the difficulties that we see them facing in life? You know, it's so easy to kind of just go from, you know, to get on your soapbox and and pummel people with philosophies and and things that you think are right. But actually, as a church, we need to be so much more. We need to be like Jesus and not just say what we think is right, but go that extra step and do what we think is right as well. Let's be a church that serves in a practical way. As well as this, though, in those first few verses of chapter 8, I, I find the crowd themselves a challenge to me you know, when I reflect on, on my walk with God. Um, and by that, I mean just how hungry they are for Jesus. You know, th- these people followed Jesus for three days straight. They, they were so hungry that they, for Jesus that they could collapse. H- how often do we feel that way? Is, is, is our desire for God like that? You know, this crowd of 4,000 people, they've left their homes, their livelihoods, everything to follow Jesus, just to see what, they don't even know what he's going to do, just to see, just to hear him, just to see what he's going to do next. How often does our pursuit of Jesus Christ mirror that, that attitude and that desire? Do we put that, that pursuit of Jesus above everything else? And the challenge is, you know, to me, as much as to you, and I mentioned earlier about the the busyness of life and you know how much 
how many different hats you know that we have to wear. You know, I think about myself. You know, I'm, I'm you know, like Graham said, I'm brother. I'm, I'm you know, to my kids. I'm daddy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm doctor. I'm, I'm so many different hats that we have to wear. It's easy to put all of those roles and responsibilities and all of those desires that we naturally have in life over and above that pursuit of Jesus. But that, but the crowd show us that that isn't the way. And I just want to, like I say, it's a challenge to me as much as to every, every one of you in this room. Let's put the pursuit of Jesus above all else. I'll just revisit verses 4 to 8. Um, His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. You know, the thing that stands out in a way is that with this miracle, when we're comparing to you know, Jesus feeding the 5,000, in Mark chapter 6, which is prior to this, is that actually this miracle, you know, if we're being picky, is, it's a bit easier, you know. <laughs> so um, Jesus has less people to feed this time, you know. Uh, last, last time there were 5,000 people, not including women and children. He's only got 4,000, you know. It's pretty easy. You know, they, he has more bread this time. He has seven loaves instead of five. You know, last time he had only two um, fish, and, and this time he has a few. So... Uh, you know, the English language, I'm guessing few is more than two, so he's got a few more fish. Um, and last time the disciples actually had to go out into the crowd to find the bread and the fish, but the disciples already had the bread and fish this time. So actually, you know, from the disciples' point of view, if they actually bore in mind what had happened already, they should have been so relaxed right now in terms of thinking this is just a piece of cake. We've been there. We've seen Jesus do it. This should be simple. Uh, I mean, I think one underrated quality of Jesus is his patience in that actually it takes him another 13 verses to actually rebuke them for this. Um, but it's not just even that he's fed the 5,000, you know. We've had you know, a good journey through the Gospel of Mark. And I just want to, if you try your best to recall what Jesus has done so far, he has resurrected people from the dead he has walked on water he has calmed the storm he has chased demons out of people he has healed the deaf the mute and the blind we're only at chapter eight okay there's plenty that jesus has done already to give confidence you would think that he can feed these four thousand people the disciples though however are just as hapless in chapter eight as they were in chapter six um clearly if they were paying attention they wouldn't be so worried and so we can only draw one or two conclusions that they are either quick to forget or they fail to see the importance in the miracles that Jesus has done already. And I think I've been, I've been a bit flippant in terms of you know, talking about the disciples, but honestly, I think we can see that as well in our own lives sometimes, many times, I would say. In that, how, how much time do we take to pay attention to the many, many miracles that Jesus does in our lives every single day? You know, 
by the time it's, it's, you know, it's half past three, how many times, how many blessings have we experienced already today? The sunshine, the warmth, the air that we breathe. Most of us, I hope, have eaten already today. Um, we have running water, we've come here in cars. Um, I, there are endless things that we have to be thankful to God for. Miracles, each and every single one of them that we have to be thankful for. How often do we just take them as though they are red, and as though they are you know, par for the course? None of it is par for the course. Reading our Bibles, none, we don't deserve any single one of the things that I have just listed. How can we be anything but eternally grateful for every single one of those little things? But we forget, just like the disciples, we forget so, so often. Um, and we, even when we pray, you know, we, we, we rush to the things that we need first before paying attention to what God has already done and who he already has shown himself to be in the things that he does for us. And the reason why this is important is because he is God. He deserves our praise and our thanks. But secondly, for ourselves, appreciation of what God has done breeds confidence, it breeds faith that actually he will do more and do for us again. You know, Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2, I'm sure many of you will be very, very familiar with these verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And like I said, I'm sure many of you are familiar with those verses already. I love it because the psalmist is almost having a word with himself, you know, giving himself a shake to don't forget what God has done. Um, and I think sometimes we need to do the same in terms of you know, rather than being led by how we feel or how our day has gone in terms of how thankful to be to God, actually sometimes having that word with ourselves to remember what he has done already and be thankful. And, and from there, we can be confident for all the challenges that we face in life. And we have so, so many. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not down talking how difficult life can be. But if we stop and give thanks first, make things so much easier. Um, because, as I said, that appreciation, it, it breeds the faith and it opens the door to the supernatural. You know, we, we've said about being Christian, being Christ-like. You'll notice in these verses, that before Jesus breaks the bread, before he breaks the fish to distribute, what does he do? He gives thanks. You know? So the Son of God himself is giving thanks before he does anything else. And it's through, it's after he gives thanks that something supernatural happens. So for ourselves as well, give thanks, praise. It opens the door for, for something supernatural to happen in our lives. Let him be the example for us to follow. His example of gratitude. And not forget what he has done. I'll just revisit again the last few verses of 9 to 13. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back in his boat, and crossed the other side. You know, 
unbelievably in a way after seeing Jesus feed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few, a few fish and the Pharisees ask for a sign you know, if we can criticize the disciples for forgetting about what Jesus has done already we have to be at least as critical for the Pharisees for being ignorant of what Jesus has done in an entirely different way and the way that they are different is that they are insincere in their questioning. Um, and actually, they are hard in their hearts. They've seen Jesus perform the miracle. They've seen him do it. But they don't want to acknowledge it. It, it, it doesn't count. Give us a, give us a sign. You know, we, 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 we've touched on how Jesus' miracle here and providing food for the hungry in the wilderness deliberately echoes how God you know, provided for the Israelites in the wilderness after the Exodus. And the Pharisees' behavior um, in these verses that we read in chapter 8 echoes that of their ancestors. Um, I'll, I'll read from Psalm 95. Uh, it says this, For he is our God, and this is, the psalmist is talking about the history of Israel uh, in a way. He says, for this, it says this, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So, you see, that the hearts of their ancestors, of the Israelite ancestors, in wanting to test God. Let's not forget that by the time they've reached the wilderness, God has performed, he's parted the sea for them to walk through, yeah? But they still doubt and grumble and moan. And for that reason, God declares his judgment on that generation because they harden their hearts they, they'd seen what, what, what God had done, but, but didn't acknowledge him for, that, for, uh, for, for who he was as a result. Um, and in the same way, the Pharisees you know, receive Jesus' judgment. And they're told that they're not going to receive another sign. And the whole point of miracles you know, was not Jesus you know, showing you know, special magic tricks or anything like that. It was to demonstrate himself as God and demonstrate the coming of God, and for, most importantly, for that to drive people to repentance so, uh, and, and to know God fully. And so by not receiving a sign, actually, Jesus here is saying he's consigning them to what they deserve for um, their hardened hearts and that they, they won't receive that ability to be able to repent and know God because of the, allowing them to follow where their heart is leading them. Um, for ourselves, the question today is, are, are we looking for a sign from God? Sometimes it, it, can, it can feel like that. It can feel like a, a, a convenient thing to say, oh, you know, God, if you, if you just sent me a sign, if you just, you know, just one time, if you just wrote in the stars or you just spoke out really, really loud, you know, that I'm here, I'm real, I, 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 I would be fine. I think I'd, I've had that thought, I'm sure. Some of you in this room may have had that thought from time to time. But the reality is, look at the world around us. How many signs do you need? You know, 
the amazing world that we, come, that we live in, is there any chance, from a logical point of view, um, that this has come from nothing? Being honest with ourselves. The answer is no, if we're being 100% honest with ourselves. And the truth is, the Bible tells us that this, the world that we live in comes from the hands of a loving God who has created you and wants to call you to be his own. Romans 1.18 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The Bible tells us that we all see the signs. If we're honest with ourselves, we see the signs. We don't need any more signs from God. The fingerprints of God are all around us. But we willingly choose to turn the other way and live in denial and harden our hearts like the Pharisees so that we can continue to live the way that we choose. As I've said, none of us needs more signs. The question today is not how many signs we need, but what is our heart towards God? Will you be like the Pharisees, living in denial, living with that hardened heart? Or will you open up your heart to hear what God is saying so loudly in his creation and what he said loudest of all in sending his son to die on a cross 2,000 years ago, the ultimate sign. Um, will you be driven to repent and say sorry and come to know God in a real and true way today? Let's finish in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for all that you have done, for all the many miracles that we receive the blessing and benefit of each and every day. We thank you for the supreme example that you are and that you have set for us on how to live our lives. We pray that we will you know, mirror you, we'll mirror your attitude, we'll mirror your heart, in all that we do and that most of all that we will not you know, simply pay lip service to the, the statutes and the ways that you've asked us to live our lives but that we will be a church and be a people that make a practical and real as Graham said earlier a missionary difference to our communities by leading our lives the way that you have asked us to Lord Jesus, we, 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 we thank and we give you praise. Amen. Amen.